Thanks, Adam. And thanks to our students who led us in worship this morning. I have to say that, you know, the church is such a unique institution in that uh, this, what we experienced this morning, is an incubator for God's young servants to be cultivated and groomed so that they will not only lead us now, but that they will have lives that are effectively engaged in, in service. And so thanks to our students who have, uh, who have led us in worship this morning. You know, I, uh, many of the churches that I've served have had uh, traditions where you stand and greet one another during the service. And uh, the extroverts loved that part of the service, you know. It was handshaking, it was hugging, you know, they'd, they'd walk from that over, part of the sanctuary over here to meet someone. It was just a wonderful experience. And then the introverts would say, could we just get rid of that? Let's just get on with the meaningful stuff. Well, so uh, COVID pandemic, you know, uh, occurred. We couldn't meet and now we're meeting again. And so where's the greeting? Introverts are happy and extroverts are saying, we need to greet. So here's what we're going to do here for the next couple of moments. We're going to have you stand and turn around and make eye contact. You're not going to touch because we still got to maintain that social distancing, but we want you to go ahead, nod your head, smile at someone, and maybe you'll see someone you haven't seen for a while, and that's a good thing. And there are some children in here, so if you're going to make eye contact with a child, You've got to get down, okay? Eyeball, eyeball to them so that it's a, it, it's a neat connu, uh, connection of eyes. So let's take a few moments and stand up, turn around, don't touch, but at least make eye contact with one another, okay? The introverts have sat down first. The extroverts are still up there having a good conversation. But I love that buzz. I have to tell you, it just is really significant. It's good to have the buzz out in the, uh, out in the foyer. But, but there's something about the buzz in here that I have to believe uh, the Lord smiles at. I want you to think back upon uh, your childhood. Specifically, where you were living at the age of six. Some of you, it's going to take you a little bit longer to get back to that period of time. But uh, are you, if you're back there, I want you to think for a moment. Do you remember your house? Do you remember your backyard? Do you remember the school, perhaps the classroom that you attended first grade? I remember my school in North Dakota. I remember a plaque on the wall listing the Ten Commandments. It was right next to the blackboard. Now, some of you are getting your phone out. You're going to Google and you're typing in, what is a blackboard? That was before the green board. So a large assembly hall actually had a picture of Jesus on the back wall. And so, my how times have changed. Now, before classes went online this spring, there was a significant debate that was raging in boards of education as to the, uh, 
was it permissible for a boy or girl to bring their own Bible to school in their backpack? So as we think about a picture of Jesus on the back wall, a plaque of the Ten Commandments at one time being very acceptable, and today you're not even sure if bringing a Bible to school is permissible. You realize that in a few generations there have been significant changes in society. Now some of the changes that we have experienced have been wonderful, uh, represent the medical advances. Just think about how many lives have been improved, lives that have been saved. Think about the mental health industry and what that has done to contribute to people's health. Many wonderful changes, but there are also other changes that have been extremely challenging, such as the scrubbing of biblical morality from all traces of public life. Uh, today, activists are like surgeons, scrubbing and scrubbing and scrubbing all the Bible germs from any type of influence in society. Our country today is quite polarized. Uh, the rhetoric that is used by politicians is so inflammatory so that opinions and, and values are held uh, with such vigor that even conversation between people of opposing positions is discouraged. Now, last fall, social media went crazy over this picture. I think we've got it. There we are. It's a picture of former President George Bush sitting uh, with Ellen DeGeneres at a Dallas Cowboy football game. And so uh, here we have a progressive Hollywood lesbian entertainer sitting next to a conservative Christian Republican president, espouser of traditional family values, and a cowboy. These two people could hardly be further apart in regards to so many issues and values, and yet they are good friends. In fact, the reaction on social media was so strong and so vitriolic that Ellen had to use her monologue a couple days later on her show to defend her friendship with George Bush. That's the extent to which our country today is polarized. And so the picture of those two people sitting together, having conversation, contrasting beliefs, lifestyle, values, is actually a very contemporary illustration of our story that's found in John chapter 4. So I encourage you to turn with me uh, to that uh, chapter. And here in this chapter we see a woman who is an outcast, who is having a significant conversation with the Son of God. Uh, their lifestyles, their choices, their values could not be further apart. We think that Ellen and George were far apart in terms of their values. That was nothing compared to this woman and the incarnate Son of God. And yet something dramatic happens in this story. So John 4, 
Um, let's begin with verse 4. So Jesus has been in the south, in Jerusalem, Judea, and he's going back up to Galilee. Now, he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour, or about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? And Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. And the woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. So here is my question today as we look at this passage. Why Jesus? You know, uh, pastors in this pulpit for years, Sunday school teachers, elders, uh, Awana workers, they encourage people to have a relationship with Jesus. And the question is, why? Why Jesus? Now, there's a, a myriad of answers why Jesus, but this text provides three wonderful answers to that question, why Jesus? And here's the first one. Because his love for me and his pursuit of me transcends all barriers. Now, Jesus in this story overcomes three barriers. We might say there are three walls of separation. And the first one, uh, is, is the wall or the barrier of gender. Notice in verse 27, the disciples came uh, back from the village with food and they were surprised to find him talking with a woman. Because you see, in those days, a rabbi, which Jesus was one, a rabbi never spoke to a woman in public. 
including his wife, a daughter, or even his sister. Pharisees, when they saw a woman approaching them, they would close their eyes and they would walk until they were certain that the woman had passed, and then they would open their eyes. That is how strong the sentiment was not to uh, be seen talking to a woman in public. Now listen very carefully. This is one of many great women stories in the life of Jesus. And it shows his deep respect for women. He treats this woman with dignity and respect because she is made in the image of God himself. He knows everything about her lifestyle. And yet he still bestows upon her a dignity representative of her being an image bearer. That is huge as we think about his treatment of this woman. So there's the, the gender gap. Secondly, there's also a racial barrier. In verse 9, the woman said to him, You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you associate with me? And so the hostility between Jews and I'm going to call it the half-breed Samaritans went back about 500 years. And this hostility was so entrenched in uh, a Jewish person's mind is that when you think of Palestine, it was, there, was the, there were three divisions. There's Galilee to the north, there's Samaria in the center, and then there's Judea and Jerusalem to the south. And so when one wanted to travel from the, from the south to the north, rather than going through the region of Samaria where they would actually have contact with these half-breed Samaritans, oftentimes many of the Jews would go around the country almost doubling their journey in order to avoid contact with Samaritans. I think that's called racism. So, it existed in his day. But I want you to know today that, that racism is more than a black and white issue. Ultimately, racism is not about skin color. It goes much deeper than that. It is about the heart, about the depravity of the heart. And that depravity surfaces itself in different ways. Coming from North Dakota, it surfaced in our attitude towards Native Americans. In Costa Rica, it surfaced towards uh, a group of indigenous people that lived in the rainforest known as the Quebecer Indians. Intense racism and hatred of the Quebecer Indians by the Tico people. In Germany, it was called the Holocaust. In Rwanda, it was known as racial genocide between the Hutu and the Tutsi tribes. In Japan, it caused the slaughter of six million Koreans and Chinese. In India, it's called the caste system. I've traveled a number of times to Kenya, and there's a small village in Kenya called Chomim. And the pastor of this, uh, this church in, in Chomim has said that one of his biggest struggles has been to overcome the racism because he comes from an, from an African tribe that was different than the majority tribe in this region. And he was not accepted. He was... He was an outsider because he wasn't of that tribe. There are African-American believers today who are acknowledging that they too have been guilty of racism. 
And so it's important for us to understand today that, that racism is, is not about the color of our skin. It's about the attitude of our heart. And it surfaces in many, many ways. There's a racial barrier here. There's a gender barrier. And thirdly, there's also a moral barrier. So that in verse 18, uh, Jesus tells this woman, I, I know your history. I, I know you've been living uh, with this man. You've had five husbands. And, you know, she is, is, is an outcast. Her choices, her lifestyle indicate that she is because, first of all, uh, she comes to the well alone. The practice in those days was for the women of the town to come together as a group and gather water. Uh, secondly, she came at noon. The practice was for them to come in the morning. And, and, and thirdly, we know this, that from the geography of the area, that there were a couple of other wells that were closer to the town than this well. And yet she chose to avoid those two wells to come to this more distant well. And so you put all these together and you realize that she was an outcast within her community and that she was an outcast because of her choices and her lifestyle. And so here's this woman who is an outcast because of her life and now she is having a conversation with the holy incarnate Son of God. And you put these three barriers together and you come to the conclusion that there was absolutely no human reason for this conversation to occur. And yet, the story tells us that gender and race and our history, as sordid as it might be, are of no significance to Jesus whatsoever when it comes to the scope of his love. Jesus was keenly aware of these walls these barriers, and, and yet his interest in this woman transcended all of those barriers. As I said, uh, I've traveled uh, enough times to Costa Rica, and I've learned of this, this group of indigenous people living in the rainforest known as the Quebecer Indians, the Ticos have had a long time uh, racist attitude towards them. But there are some Tico pastors who wanted to communicate the love of Jesus to the Quebecer Indians. They are so isolated, there are no roads, it's impossible to travel. So when these pastors go into this region to try to care for the, the few believers that are there, they, they literally will walk for days. And they'll go from village to village. And, and so they could be gone for a week on end to visit the few Christians that are there. And so one time when we were there, we were talking a little bit about how to, to reach out to the Quebecer Indians. And so suddenly the idea popped to the surface. What these pastors need are horses to visit the, the, the people. And so I brought that idea back to our children's ministry. And so our children's offerings for a time, were devoted to raising money to buy two horses and saddles and gear for pastors. I tell you what, children came home after Sunday school, and they told their mom and dad, they said, let's break open that piggy bank because we're going to buy horses for pastors. They got so excited about that. And our children's director, uh, after the, the money had been raised and they bought the horses, she went down there and she helped deliver the horses to these people, went into that remote region. It's just a grand, grand story. 
because, you see, God's love for the Quebecer Indians transcended all the barriers, whether they're racial or geographic. That's who Jesus is. There is no barrier that is too big. There is no gap that is too broad that Jesus will not cross to show people his love. Is there an amen? Amen. There is no barrier that is too broad. You know, Jesus told the parable of the sheep, the 99 sheep that were safe, but there was one. There was one that was lost, and he left the 99 the shepherd did to go find the one lost sheep. That's the love of Jesus. You see, why Jesus? Because his love for me and his pursuit of me transcends all barriers. There's a second reason. Because Jesus meets me where I am. And that's seen in three ways in this story. First of all, he meets her physically. So she's at this well at noon uh, as a result of her choices and lifestyle. And in verse 6, we're, we're told that Jesus was tired and he sat down. Now, our translations say, by the well. Uh, the the uh, Greek language scholars say that the preposition by could very easily be translated on, meaning that you know, around the well, there would be the stones. And in all likelihood, Jesus could have sat down on those stones around the well so that when she came to the well, she got very close in physical proximity uh, to Jesus. And he was sitting there because he was tired. How significant is that? John 1 and verse 14. But the word became flesh and, and lived among us. Is, is there a greater statement about Jesus meeting us where we're at than the fact that he became a human being to identify with fallen, broken humanity? Now, he, he didn't desert or, or, or leave any of his divinity behind. He, he, he remained the Son of God while on earth. However, we, we might say that he cloaked his deity in his humanity so that some people never did see his deity. You had to look carefully, but you could see the deity in the midst of his humanity. And so Jesus physically identified with her as he physically identifies with us as human beings. But it's more than just a physical. It's also a psychological because the story begins with water from a well. But Jesus quickly moves from H2O to the symbolism of water. Let me talk to you about living water. She's intrigued by this. And, of course, people in those days would understand the imagery of having a soul that is thirsty. Last, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at Nicodemus and realized that there was a dissatisfaction in his life. This woman had it as well. Now, she was looking for satisfaction in men. She was now on number six. And yet, nothing had satisfied. And so Jesus talks to her about this living water, and that's a, a psychological uh, conversation that's occurring. But most importantly, there's also a, a theological connection. He meets her. He understands something of where she's coming from theologically. I mean, her religious knowledge, as it's laid out in this text, was, was a mixture of there was some truth, there was some distortion of that, and it is also very limited. 
so that in verse 10, he said to her, if you knew, and of course, she doesn't know. What does she not know? She says, he says, if you, did, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And she is descriptive of so many people today who do not understand the gift of grace and forgiveness, the gift of being accepted unconditionally, the gift of having God's presence with you wherever you are. Some people just have no understanding of that nor do they understand who Jesus is and what he did for people. This woman is like so many people in the world today. And yet, as this conversation unfolds, there is a significant progression in her understanding of Jesus. It begins, he's just a thirsty man. He's a Jew. Well, then he's, uh, he's, he's a prophet, or he's a rabbi, and then a prophet, and ultimately he is the Messiah. And that progression is helpful to us because it, it, it speaks to us of the journey that people take to understand the significance of Jesus. For most people today, they would see him as a good man. They won't grant that he's the son of God, but they'll, they'll, they'll give you that, that he's a good man. And yet, as you begin to read the Gospels, you, you find yourself uh, wrestling that he, he's more than just a good man. And it grows, and Jesus becomes more and more beautiful the more you study the Gospels. So there was a, a fellow in a former church of mine. His name was Bob. Bob's testimony was absolutely remarkable. He lived in England. He was British. And he was an agnostic. And he decided that he was going to hitchhike from England to India. If you've got a globe, you realize that's a hike. He was going to hitchhike from England down to India to study Eastern mysticism. And so he does that, and he gets to Israel, and he runs out of money. So he takes a job at a kibbutz there in Israel. And so while he's living and working in a kibbutz in Israel, he learns about Jesus and becomes a Christian. You begin to realize that Jesus meets people wherever they're at. English agnostic going to India to study mysticism and in Israel, modern Israel, discovers Jesus. I tell you, Jesus meets people wherever they are. And that's true today. It could be a prison cell, could be a corporate office, could be a dormitory. Jesus is revealing himself uh, to Muslims through visions and dreams. He meets people who have no understanding of the Bible, people who have distorted images of God, people who have a sordid past. That's what Jesus is doing today. He is meeting people. He meets us where we're at. He doesn't tell us, you know, when you kind of clean it up a little bit and when you get it better together, then we'll meet. Jesus knows our mess. And he meets us in the middle of our mess. And it's so incredibly important for people to know today. He knows your mess. And he doesn't turn his back upon you and your mess. No, he comes to you in the midst of that. And he said, let me get you out of that mess. 
as he got this woman out of the mess that she was in. And so, why Jesus? He meets me where I am. And finally, number three, why Jesus? Because he changes everything. He changes everything. And that conversation begins in verse 16 where he moves from this discussion of living water and he says, let's, let's get more personal. Let's, let's bring your husband here and come back. And she says, I, I have no husband, of course. And uh, she answers truthfully, I have no husband. But she does omit a few chapters in her story, doesn't she? And so uh, Jesus hears what she says, and so he, he fills in those missing chapters. And so he exposes her sin, and yet there's something significant that at either bookend of her sin is an acknowledgement. He says, what you have said is truthful. Now, there's more to the story, but I find great beauty in, in the response of Jesus. While he exposes her sin, he also maintains her dignity. And I think that's very significant about who Jesus is and how he, he, he reveals himself to people. There have been occasions in my life where I have sensed the, the, the manifold presence of God, the manifest presence of God. You know, we think of God's omnipresence. He's everywhere. And then there's his presence in the, Holy, in the form of the Holy Spirit in a believer. But then there are occasions where you have a sense that this is a holy moment. We're on holy ground. This is it's just one of those intimate experiences that you have with God. And you know that it's a holy moment. And when I've had those, there have been two very different realities that have been part of, of that experience. On the, the one reality is a sense of my own insignificance, my own unworthiness. I am in the, the presence of God. Woe is me. And yet, simultaneously with that experience, there's a second experience that tells me how loved I am, how significant I am how he will never leave me and never forsake me. There's, there's words of affirmation in the midst of feeling so unworthy. And you, you put those two things together. How, how can they be in the same experience? And that, that's a God experience. Because when this multifaceted God appears to you, you are filled with so many things, of which one is a sense of unworthiness and another is feeling incredibly loved and accepted in His presence. How beautiful, beautiful that is. And so this woman has that kind of experience here with Jesus. And notice in verse 28 that she left her water jar. I think it's very significant that John includes that. She left her water jar and she went back to the town and she said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. So her routine and her rhythm up to that day had been one in which she was an outcast. She was isolated. She had very few friends and contacts. So she, uh, after she meets Jesus, she goes back into the village. And gone is the guilt and gone is the shame because she said, Tell, there's a man there who knows everything about me. 
And she invites others to come and to witness what she has experienced. And, and so you realize that, that her encounter with Jesus is now changing everything. Her past and her, the shame, and he's putting her on a new course. And here's the, the final truth out of this story that I would leave us with today. There is no one that knows you like Jesus knows you. No one. There are secrets that we might have from others, but there are no secrets with Jesus. He knows everything about us. That's a sobering thought, isn't it? No one knows you like Jesus knows you, but no one loves you like Jesus loves you. Think about that. The one who knows more about you than anyone else is the one who loves you the very best. I can't explain that much better than just simply saying accept it, embrace it, and realize it, that Jesus is in your favor. He is for you, as the song says. He is for you. Why, Jesus? It's because no one knows you as well as he does. And no one loves you like Jesus loves you. Let's pray. Lord, this is a holy moment where the reality of knowing that our lives are laid bare before you, the omniscient one knows every detail of my life, where my mind and my eyes and my words have been. Nothing is hidden. And yet, no one loves me like you love me. Lord, to embrace those truths is difficult. But Lord, we would choose to stay. To want to let that truth grip our lives. Lord, thank you for the places that you have gone to rescue people. Thank you that you have met us in the middle of our mess and you are bringing deliverance out of those messes. Lord, thank you for your willingness to transcend all the barriers to bring us home. And Lord, thank you for the missions program that is going to the ends of the earth to, to bring your love to people neglected and overlooked. Lord, how we thank you for your incredible love. And so, Lord, we just simply, in response to that message, why Jesus, we just simply say thank you for the beauty of this one. God incarnate who walks with us, lives within us, continues to transform us. Lord, we ask as we conclude our service today 
that the love of God our Father, that overwhelming grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that intimate fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us so that we might live lives reflecting the beauty of Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray.